second speaker for this evening, Dave P. from San Diego. My name is David, and I'm alcoholic. And I've been sober since June 21st, 1986. Most of the time when I come to a speaker meeting and I hear a dynamic speaker, 10-minute speaker to speak, I feel sorry for the uh, 45-minute speaker. Tonight's no different. <laughs> Let's give a hand for uh, Catherine. I'm so excited to be here. I really am. I, I, this is one of the most favorite things I get to do in Alcoholics Anonymous, an honor and privilege. I want to thank Sam for having me up here. Uh, Sam and I go way back, a long time. We both attended Mesa College at the same time, and I was taking accounting classes, and Sam took the CPA exam. And uh, he's helping me with my accounting classes, and and he says, I think I should study for the next exam. And I said, Sam, shouldn't you wait for the results to come back? Well, he became an accountant. I became a social worker. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't catch it, by now I got sober when I was about two years old. I always do this speaker prayer every time I speak. God, make me a hit. <laughs> the truth is I've already invited God in this conversation. I've already invited him here. Can you feel him? It's one alcoholic I'll talk to another. I just happen to have the microphone tonight. And it's an honor and privilege to do this, and I realize that God uses my experience, strength, and hope to help others quite a bit in and out of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm supposed to share in a general way what I used to be like, what happened, and what I'm like tonight. Or, yeah, tonight. i got to come up with the present moment, right? Because that's all we got is the moment, the present moment, the fourth dimension. So I'm going I'm to carry you back to my childhood. I was born and raised in a little town called Vero Beach, Florida. My, my parents were complete opposite. My dad is a very stoic gentleman. He, he didn't have the ability or he didn't have the wherewithal to express emotions very much, anger or love, either one. He, he never said, I'm proud of you or anything like that. He was this guy that was heavily involved with the Moose Lodge. and uh, But he was always a good provider. Uh, stable environment, very stern. And he had some good morals and good values. My mom was this vivacious, really vivacious woman that was a bartender. And she was really good at it. And she was a drinker. Now, she was a very talented woman. She cooked very well. She sewed. And uh, there's several outfits that I still wear that she... Uh, <laughs> not this suit. This is a Macy suit. <laughs> but she's made me shirts throughout the years, and I still own several of them. 
My dad is also this stoic guy that uh, he's in this generation where you don't talk about the, the inevitable uh, when he dies. Uh, he's a hoarder. And so he doesn't talk about, you know, the, uh, the legal aspects when he's going to die, what's going to happen to his properties and stuff like that. And, and so he's having a lot of medical issues. He's in his late 80s. And he's having a lot of heart attacks and strokes and stuff like that. And our conversations are very limited today. Uh, we usually talk about the weather or, or you know, whatever is a general topic, but no, nothing really deep. And I miss being able to talk to my dad. Now, my mom, she's always been a very selfish woman, always, uh, even when I was a little kid, and she was always that way. To this day, she's that way. And and what she's going through is she has dementia. And um, my sister is two years younger than me. And my sister is taking care of all the legal aspects, all the taking care of my uh, mom and, and my dad. And my sister lives on the separate on the west coast of Florida, so it is a really big deal. And I said to my sister a few months ago, I said, how can I help? She goes, just make the phone calls. So when I talked to my dad, I talked to him a couple of days ago about the hurricane that was uh, in South Florida, and we talked about that, and we talked about the little moisture we had here and the hot heat. And I called my mom, and I'm looking forward to that phone call every time. I said, Mom, are we ready to run around the block again? And she just laughs, and we talk a little gibberish. And um, I don't know what it feels like to her, but I know what it feels like to me. It feels good that I'm able to do that on a, on a weekly basis. And if either one of them were to die today, my slate's clean with them. It's clean. Now, what I was going growing up, I was restless, irritable, discontent. And I just remembered this a couple of days ago. I've got an older brother, and he was cutting the lawn. And I was pull, pushing this toy lawnmower, and my brother was cutting around a tree or something like that, and he wasn't going fast enough. And I walked in front of him, and here's what I heard my mom say. Your kid needs to go to the hospital. And I heard that, and I haven't thought about that in many, many years, but that's what I heard back then, and they got me to the hospital. And what was going on when I was about five or six years old, I got a lazy eye. And they put an eye patch on my eye. And this other complex I got going on, I'm a bedwetter until I was about 12 years old. And I'm, I'm wetting the bed, and I don't know why I'm wetting the bed. But I got these two complexes, plus I'm a middle child. So I got an older brother that disappeared when I was a kid. He's disappeared now. I haven't talked to him since 1990, so I do not know where he No one knows. He's just gone. And it's sad, really sad. Uh, 
at 12 or 13 years old, my mom decided that she had enough of the marriage and, and uh, left town, abandoned two kids. My dad and I fought all through high school. And basically, my sister and I were latchkid keys before they invented that term because my dad worked really hard. And there was a couple of uh, years where he worked the night shift, and so we didn't see him for a while, you know, except for on the weekends. But he was always he was always stable in you know his word. He gave me some good values and principles that I live to buy today. When I was about 12 years old, he went out and financed a lawnmower for me. He said, go out and make your own money. And that's been a good, valuable lesson that I learned. When my mom left town, my dad and I fought, you know, and I had a lot of resentment, anger, frustrations, and all that good stuff that was going on. And And one clear example of how selfish I am, about 40 years ago, Hurricane David was going through South Florida. And my my father, my grandmother lived about half of, half of a half hour drive. And my father, the phone went out. The electricity went out. So he, he gathered myself and him. And we're driving this Vega down the road in this hurricane to go get my grandmother so we could get her to safety. And I'm complaining about the whole situation, not taking into account that my grandmother could be scared or, or whatever. And my father's doing the very best he could to do what he had to do. And that was way before I took a drink of alcohol. Graduated high school in 1981. I don't know if my father said this or not, but here's what I heard. Son, what service are you joining? My last name's Patton. <laughs> I joined the United States Navy. <laughs> I get into boot camp in September 1981, and my company commander looked at me and he says, I don't know what you need, drunk or laid. Now, I hadn't experienced any one of those. I don't know what I was missing. <laughs> but I graduated boot camp in November of 1981, and I had my first drink of alcohol, and I was no longer restless, irritable, discontent. I no longer had that twisting in my gut. No longer had it in my gut. And I knew why my mom drank, because that magic of that alcohol did its job. I was no longer irritable. And I mean, it's just, and I chased that feeling to the gates of death. I was in the Navy. I was a boiler technician stationed in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, I worked hard, really hard. And it was 120 degree temperatures and I will say that I was well-liked, but I always got in these little blemishes. I could describe them as a pinball machine. I would bounce in and out of the... For the young folks, a pinball machine is where you stick a... 
quarter and this, and you had these flappers, and sometimes, sometimes I'd get the extra balls, sometimes I'd get the free bonus points, but sometimes that ball would go straight down in the center and I couldn't hit the flappers. And that was the story in my drinking career. Absolutely, I was a sailor, and there was a girl in every port, and there was a drunk in every port, and there was disaster in every port, and there was, um, and I was well liked, so I was well protected from trouble. But every now and then I would get in these little troubles where they couldn't get me out of. Over and over, and I was saying I'd never drink again. My friend Renee asked me to share this story. She owes me five bucks. <laughs> My nickname in the Navy was Papa Smurf. So I had this brilliant ideal. Alcoholics always have brilliant ideals, don't they? I was about 20 years old, and I had this brilliant ideal that I was going to get a tattoo of a Papa Smurf on my rear end. <laughs> like I said, alcoholics have brilliant ideals. Get to the tattoo place, and the tattoo place was closed for lunch. Thank God they have lunch hours, huh? <laughs> Seconds and inches, boy. That tattoo would look great at, at uh, 20 years old, but at 55, I don't think it would look that great. <laughs> I spent 10 years in the Navy, and I never got a tattoo. <laughs> December of 1984, I'm in Cocoa Beach, Florida. And it's Christmas Eve, and I meet these two people outside this bar. And they said, uh, we know where we can get some women at, and some more liquor. That, that's two important ingredients in my life, <laughs> women and liquor. So let's go. And so we went down the road in Cocoa Beach, Florida, and they get, get me stopped. And I'm stopped. And they stick a gun to my chest. This is in 1984, Christmas Eve in 1984. They stick a gun to my chest. And as they were driving off with my 1984 red Chevette, not a Corvette, but red Chevette, I'd pray to God if he got me my Chevette back, I'd stop drinking. I've been sober most of that time since I made that statement. I still haven't got that Chevette back. Two weeks, two weeks later, I buy a car, and this is a very symbolism of an unmanageable ability in my life, drunk or sober during that period of my life. Two weeks after that, I buy another car, and it's a five-speed. I never drove a five-speed in my life. Two hours after I own a brand new 1984 Chevette, it was white though, it wasn't red. I burn up the clutch. How do you burn up a clutch in a new car? I did. And I eventually learned how to drive that car.
And I moved in with these guys that liked to drink like I drank. I went to many, many spring breaks while, during that period of time. And Sephora was never in college during that period of time. And we used to take beer bongs to bars. Beer bongs is where you stick a funnel. Normal people don't drink beer through a funnel. Normal people drink half of a beer and say, I, I, I'm feeling the effect. I, I've had enough. But I drink that beer for, through a funnel. And I had a lot of fun doing it. May of 1985 was no different than the other night. We went to the bar that night, and it was on a Tuesday. It was drink and drown night. It was $5, all you could drink from 8 to midnight. And it was heaven. And that night I left the bar, and I was going 85 miles an hour in a Chevette. And I hit a ditch embankment, and I flew 65 feet in the air, and I collapsed my lung. I had a busted liver, busted pancreas, liver was busted, the kidney was busted. They made that call to my parents. They said, your kid may not make it out of the hospital. So you better get out of your busy life and come up to Charleston from South Florida. My parents had to take off work. My sister had to take out of school. My brother had to take off work. And a friend of the family had to take off, you know, and they were up there visiting their son that put him through misery. And no parents should ever have to go through that, and I put him through that. I was 21 years old, and somebody come in there and did a, uh, they asked me a stupid question. I'm laying in an intensive care unit, and I'm 21 years old, and all I'm caring about is that Chevette that I didn't like driving to begin with because I had to get to there, you know. I didn't realize the ramifications of almost dying. And they asked me a silly question. Do you think you got a drinking problem? I said, I don't think so. I think I, I know I'm never going to drink and drive again. Shortly after that, I get introduced to Rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it was a Friday night. It was right about the same time this uh, in May of 19, uh, September of 1985. I got introduced to Rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I instantly fell in love with it. And there was a there was a person that was sitting beside me. That person was really, really old. And today I don't consider that old. I consider that really young. <laughs> 35. <laughs> Dave, you know, I know you pee in the shower. I don't know how you knew, but you knew. So if you knew, we know. <laughs> we absolutely know. And please share your secrets with us so we can have a good laugh. Share your problems with us. And share your brilliant ideals because I guarantee you we've thought of them. We may have done some of them, but please share them with us. I had this lurking notion that someday, somehow, I was going to control and enjoy my drinking. I wasn't quite done drinking. I was not quite done drinking because I had that lurking notion that someday I'll drink differently. It wasn't that bad. 
Needless to say, I had two near-death experiences in six months, and it wasn't that bad. So a year later, somebody did a uh, made a stupid comment to me. This was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Made a stupid comment to me. He said, uh, you can't drink. And I got a resentment. And I said, I'll show you. Three weeks later, I'm drinking and I can't figure out how come I can't stop drinking. I was dating a, uh, a gal in, uh, in Fort Lauderdale and she was a psychology major from NYU. And I told my boss at that time, I said, you know, I'm dating this psychology major from NYU. And, and my boss says, she has you for a summer experiment. <laughs> so our next date, and we went on a date to a movies, and it was a nice movie, and, and I told her that experience, and she goes, no, it's going to take a lot longer in the summer for you. June 21st, 1986 was Father's Day. My sister is having a baby, and I'm in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And she's in a different part of the state, and she's having a baby. And and here's what I'm doing. I'm partying with my girlfriend at that time. And I force-fed her the beer. And she gave me that look as that beer rolled down her nice outfit. And she goes, what's the matter with you? And I got that god-awful look, the pitiful and incomparable demoralization. And, in, and I conceded in my innermost self I was alcoholic in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I've been done drinking ever since then. I was done. I was done paying the price for drinking. Now, I'd like to tell you that... Uh, I was a, a spiritual giant in my first five years of sober, but I wasn't. I had a lot of miracles happen. But later that night, a lot of miracles happened, but later that night, here's the beginning of, of one of them. I get stopped for a DUI. My hood on my Ford Mustang, maybe it's a Ford now. My Ford Mustang pops up and the highway patrol does the sobriety test on me, and he says, uh, you're drinking. And at that period of time, I made a deal with a Navy recruiter, and he made a deal with, with a district attorney. If he could get me back into the Navy, they would drop the charges. Now, I didn't want to go back into the Navy, but you know, I, I don't look good in jail. So I agreed to go back into the Navy, and I wrote the President of the United States a letter because I've got one kidney, and I'm not supposed to be able to go back into the, into the military. They let me back into the military. I get into the military, and it was, it was a blessing. It, was, it saved my life. It absolutely saved my life. And I'd like to tell you that I was a happy camper in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd like to tell you that I lived the spiritual principles you know, first five or six years sober, but that's not been my case. I was 22 years old when I got sober. 
And what happened to me was, was I would participate in meetings like this. I had service commitments and I would go leave here and go into a nightclub. And what were nightclubs? Either drinkers that were married or single or I didn't have any temptations of drinking, but I did have a lot of temptations of lustful actions. And I've taken a lot of lustful actions that uh, I don't regret any of it because uh, actually one of them actually did get physically sober. I was about two years sober when I met her. And the last time I saw her, she was about four years sober and the significance of that story was my motives were all whacked, all whacked. And when I'm talking to her, when she's about two years sober, she goes, and I'm, I said, you know, I'm, I'm really guilty about this. I'm really sorry about my behavior. She goes, no, God used you because I could not get sober. And I saw that you were sober and it gave me hope. And I'm like, wow, that's powerful. Even though my motives were totally askew. On page 70 in this book, it basically says, if I keep doing the actions, it's on page 70, if I keep doing the actions that I know are inappropriately, I'll drink. But if I stop the actions, it's going to basically relieve me of that. And I stopped those actions. I got involved with Alcoholics Anonymous because I had a psychologist said, why don't you try Alcoholics Anonymous? And I said, I'm going to meetings. She goes, there's more than going to meetings and going to meetings. And I absolutely got that. I got that. I was physically sober, six years sober, but I was not very spiritual. And I got really busy and I started applying the 12 steps and 12 principles in all my affairs. And my life changed. It changed almost drastically. I started to feel better about myself. I started doing esteemable acts. And I started participating in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was on the Young People's Committee. And we were going all over California putting on Young People's Dances. And the only reason why I ever danced is uh, so I could get companionship later. <laughs> but I was the coffee maker. I was the coffee maker. And this was before Starbucks. This was before Monster Drinks. This was before any of that stuff. And I was the coffee maker for this Young People's Committee. And we were putting on dances all over the place. But the 12 steps and 12 principles, I'm going to read the 12 principles right now, honesty, hope, action, courage, integrity, willingness, humility, brotherly love, discipline, perseverance, spiritual wellness, and service. I started to apply those to all my affairs, everything I was doing, everything. And about that same time, I buy this wetsuit, and I got this wetsuit zipped up in the front, and the knee pads are in the back. The surfers know exactly what I'm talking about. The knee pads are in the back and the crotch pads in the back and it's not fitting. It's not fitting. And it's uncomfortable to take on and off. 
and I'm about ready to throw this disgusting thing in the trash can. And somebody from across the beach, hey, dummy, the zipper goes in the back. And I did not believe them. And as, and ironically, the name of the wetsuit is body glove, and it fit me like a glove. And as I was catching a wave out there in the ocean, I realized if everything in my life was to follow, I would have to follow the 12 steps and 12 principles in all my affairs. It's one thing to believe that, but it's another thing to live it. About that same time, I was discharged from the Navy for the last time, honorably discharged, and I applied for disability because I got one kidney, right? They tell me to apply. They sent to me to another psychologist, and they told me something that just baffled me. It just baffled me. You got something wrong with you. And I didn't know what it was. They said it was acquired uh, a brain injury, a TBI, short-term motor dyslexia, unable to communicate with each other, unable to compete for employment. You're basically going to be on Social Security disability and Section 8 housing the rest of your life. And I was 29 years old. I was devastated, absolutely devastated. I was, what, five, six, seven years sober, and I was devastated. And like I said, I got really busy, and I started to really feel good about myself. And now I got this news. And I buy a bicycle because I didn't have the money to buy a car or I didn't have money to own a car. And I buy this bicycle, and I'm riding down the road, and I see these box of quarters. There's a big box of quarters with the keys in them from newspaper stands. Young folks, there used to be things where they print print on it with news. Way before the Internet got invented. I was out of money. I wasn't sure I went out, and there was no food in the refrigerator. I was out of money. And it was two weeks prior to my next Social Security check. And I spot these quarters. And I needed that $40. I absolutely needed that $40. And I found the, found who these keys belonged to and I called them up. The dude knocked on my door. And this is the only time I've ever used the word dude. The dude knocked on my door and he says, dude, you saved my life and hands me a $100 bill. The next day, dude, it just saved my life and hands me another $100 bill. I needed that $40, but I got blessed with way more than that because I had the integrity to do the right thing for the right reasons. From that, from that brain injury class, or that brain injury diagnosis, I was told to go to these brain injury classes, uh, through the county, and I went to the community college district. I was there for a couple of semesters, and they encouraged me to enroll in Mesa College. Half of AA was going to Mesa College. It seemed like a it seemed like an AA meeting to me. <laughs> 
So I kept going to classes, kept going to classes, kept going to classes, kept going to classes. And eventually I got a bachelor's degree from San Diego State University. Now, my father never told me, oh, you guys put me through there. I attended the class and did the work, but you guys gave me the encouragement year after year after year after year. My diploma does not say I was 44 years old. It doesn't say it took me 15 years to get through the college. It says I earned the privileges of that bachelor's degree. Before I got that bachelor's degree, I was about 20 years sober. This was about 13 years ago. I'm driving a pickup truck, and I get sideswiped from a meeting. And uh, the, the vehicle gets totaled. And I'm buying another bicycle, and I'm reliving what I had to relive when I was 8, 9, 10 years sober and didn't have a car. I'm reliving that nightmare and not being able to drive a vehicle because I couldn't afford one. And I'm talking to my insurance agent on a daily basis, on a daily basis. Right before Thanksgiving, he calls me into the, he has a secretary come and picks me up from my apartment, has me come there. And he says, you're buying a car today. And I'm like, I can't afford a car. And he says, don't kick the gift horse in the mouth. I want to repeat this. The insurance agent gave me a car. In my 20s, I had a Camaro. And I was getting a lot of speeding tickets sober. I was not a good citizen sober. The insurance agent gave me a car, and I said, how can I repay you? He's just to help others, help others. He knew I was heavily involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, but he also knew that I participated in a lot of service work outside the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. One of the service works that I do outside of Alcoholics Anonymous, I do this on a routine basis, is I donate blood. They actually want my blood. Can you believe it? I donate blood because most people can't or won't. So I, I'm able to donate blood, so I do it. The ironic thing about donating blood, it takes a human being sacrifice to make that time and effort. So I do it on a consistent basis. And it helps me to be a part of society. I was never going to work again. Okay, I got ten minutes. I was never going to work again. And what happened to me was, what happened was I was never going to work again, so I interviewed for this position with the state of California as a veteran employment case manager. And the ladies that interviewed me said there was two of them. They were 45 minutes into the interview before they asked me a question. We got enough. You're qualified for, for the positions. Both of those managers said this comment uh, because they excused themselves. They actually went out and cried. One of them said, and this is much later, but one of them says, my job is to get you trained for the job. The other one, and she's retired now, 
The other one says, I'm going to retire when you get married. And I think she's going to be uh, there a long time. (laughs) I don't even have a girlfriend today. Six years ago, my life turned upside down as a no, uh, as a no fault of my own. Six years ago, it turned upside down. I'm driving to a convention in, in, uh, Mammoth. It was in Mammoth. <laughs> Jeff must be back there. I'm driving to a convention in Mammoth, and I get stopped by the highway patrol. And they thought I was drinking, but then they thought I was on drugs. And they drove my vehicle, or towed my vehicle away. And I was devastated, absolutely devastated. I ain't done either, either one of those uh, chemicals. But I was devastated, and I couldn't share this with very many folks. And what happened from that experience, I left San Diego to be closer to God. And the lawyer I hired, he happened to be a former, a former uh, district attorney for that area. He happened to be uh, somebody who was very familiar with traumatic brain injury. He happened to believe what I had to say because I showed him all my awards, my certificates, my 27-year token. And he says, that's a great story. I believe what you had to say. He eventually got the charges dropped. But as he was saying this, he says, you're scared, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I am. And he says, I got big shoulders. This guy was big. He wasn't fat. He was big. Looked like he lifted weights, and he was a big guy. God's really big. God is really big. And so what happened from that experience is I got really closer to God as a result of that experience. That I didn't do anything wrong. I may have swerved a little bit, but other than that, I really didn't do anything wrong. And I had to live that nightmare on a continuing basis for six months until those charges were dropped. And it changed my life. It absolutely changed my life because i got a big God today. i got a big God. I'm in prayer and meditation quite a bit because there's 86,400 seconds in every day. I better make the most of them. I better make the most of them. I'm going to end with this story. My favorite place in the whole world is the Grand Canyon. Most people have never been to the Grand Canyon. And most people that get to the Grand Canyon will have this experience. They'll look and see that big hole in the ground, maybe impressed for 10, 15, maybe, maybe a couple hours, but they never experienced the Grand Canyon. I've hiked that place twice. The last time I hiked it, I'm at the bottom of, I'm at the bottom of the hill. I'm about six, six hours into this experience. And I'm almost out of water. And it's hot. It's 115 degree temperature. 
and I'm thinking I'm getting lost. I know I'm almost there, but I, I don't, I haven't seen anybody in a while. And I look down and I see some donkey dew. And if, you, if you've never been to the Grand Canyon, there's donkeys that carry people down to the bottom. I can't imagine riding on a donkey for eight hours. I just can't imagine that, but people do. And I said, my God, that's an amazing experience. I've seen donkey do. The point of that story is, <laughs> the point of that story is, there's always somebody on the path before me that's given us some donkey do and leaving it. There's always somebody behind me experiencing that donkey do. We're not alone on this path. I get down to the bottom. I get down to the bottom, and it's a sigh of relief that I'm down to the bottom. I'm about ready to check into the campsite, ready to get into the hotel, some air conditioning, you know, ready to take a shower, and that cool air hits me. It hits me really bad. Almost passed out. And they get the ranger over. They give a gallon of electric lights at me. They tell me to go wait in the stream, go take a shower. And I do that, and I think I'm okay. I think I'm okay. And I'm walking around the area waiting for dinner. They have a nice steak dinner down there. and I'm waiting for dinner because I'm hungry. And a complete stranger... Never seen her before. I haven't seen her since. A complete stranger says, you're dehydrated. I said, no, I just had a gallon of that stuff. She goes, when's the last time you peed? I said, about three or four hours ago. She goes, you're dehydrated. You do not know how close you are to death. The day before, they had the helicopter somebody out of there. I didn't know how close I was to death. It took a complete stranger to rescue me. And after I drank three gallons of water or electrolytes, I was able to go pee. And and the next day I was able to hike up the mountain very safely because I was well adverse to how I should uh, carry stuff and had electrolytes, plenty of water, and plenty of food and stuff like that. So I was well prepared. The symbolism of that particular part of that story is it was a stranger. I had to trust a stranger to help me. So if you're new or not new, there's a bunch of strangers in here that are willing to help you. And you just don't know which stranger that is. Got two minutes left and I'm going to finish on time because that's important. Somebody wants some ice cream somewhere, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Me. (laughs) Most people that get to Alcoholics Anonymous have the privilege of getting the Alcoholics Anonymous will look at that hole. And there, that's all there is. But we'll not experience the deliciousness of how 
great sobriety is. Sobriety is good. It's delightful. And it's not done alone. It's not done alone. The choice is do you want to be a, a tourist or do you want to experience sobriety? Thank you.